Well, good morning, if I haven't already said that. I don't think I, I have, because I didn't do the announcements this morning, so good morning. Thank you. I just realized this is the first time I've, I've preached behind this pulpit, so that's a, a little new experience for me. It's, it's bigger than I thought it was. <laughs> I, get to, I get the pleasure to preach from Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15 today. That's where we're going to be landing and I was, as I was pondering this passage, we're going to be talking a lot about freedom and what freedom means. And it reminded me of a story from high school. I just realized my parents are here this week, and if I say I have a, a story from my past, they get a little nervous because they don't, they don't know a lot of the things that I did in my past, and I've repented for that. But I, this is a good story, so no need to be nervous this time. But in high school, um, like every high school student, I was forced to take speech class. You may not know this about me, but I, I am terrified of public speaking, uh, especially I was in, in school and when I was younger, so did not want to do speech class, didn't, didn't want to do that at all. But in, in speech class, you have to do different things. You don't just talk the whole time, uh, thank goodness. You, we had to do different things, and one of the things we had to do was we had to do like these skits or impromptu things where he, they gave us like a, something to like, reenact. You know, I'm a freshman in high school. Most of my, my knowledge and education really is from church at this time, and for some reason, I, I know what reason, that's God's sovereign will, the, the thing I pull out of the hat that I have to reenact with somebody in the class is saving a girl in an elevator. I don't know what goes through your head when you hear that. The only saving I knew was, well, giving her the Romans road and asking her to accept Christ. So that's what I did. Thankfully, the girl who was my partner was, was a Methodist, and she knew what I was doing. <laughs> so I, I were in, in this fake elevator in, in public school, and I proceeded to share the gospel with her, and then she received the gospel, and she, she was saved right there. Uh, it wasn't until many years later that I thought about the incident and thought, that's not what he wanted me to do. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was speech, and like he, you know, it was how I interpreted it, so I didn't get marked down for it. It was, it was fine. This was, you know, in the 1990s, so it's a long time ago. But I wasn't realized, I later on was like, I was probably supposed to like physically save her from danger. But uh, the salvation that I was doing was more important than that, so. But we talk about salvation, we talk about being saved. Those are churchy words that we use a lot. And if you would have asked me at that time in ninth grade, what was I being saved from, I probably would have just kind of stared at you because I really couldn't really explain that when, when we talk about salvation in, in, in our lives and in the lives of other people, that that means we are saved from something and we are saved to something else. And uh, it, it took a little bit longer in my life until I really understood all of the, the doctrinal workings of that and what that really meant in my life and, and for uh, what happens in my heart and all those things. But this morning, we get to talk about a little bit about that. We get to see in the scriptures you know, what we are saved from a little bit, and we get to talk about the fact that we are saved for freedom. And, and then Paul gives us illustrations and talking about how we can use the freedom that he's given us. But really, to, to look at this passage and uh, as we look at the fact that if you look in your Bible, we have chapter 5, verse 1, 
it's kind of unfortunate the way it's broken up because really chapter 5, verse 1, really should be kind of cut off and put back up with the previous section. Chapter 5, verse 1 is really the climax or thesis to what Paul has been saying for the last two chapters. And so when you read it, if you just read it in standalone of, of, verse, of chapter 5, you're kind of missing all of the, the part that came with it. So as we read chapter 5 today, really think back about the, all the stuff that Paul has talked about. Paul is, is talking here to the group of the churches of Galatia. Paul has a deep love and concern for these individuals. This isn't a situation where Paul is like, yeah, they're acquaintances of mine. You know, I really, I really hope that they, it turns out well for them. Paul loves them. And Paul has a lot of concern for them. Paul has shared the gospel with them. Paul got to witness the Holy Spirit work in their lives, the gospel take root in their lives. Churches were started. Paul has seen the Holy Spirit work in these churches, and so he loves them. He has relationships with them. But after Paul left, as he left on his missionary journeys, well, other people crept into the church, and people started to, to tell them that, that they needed to discredit Paul, they needed to give them false information. They started to preach a false gospel, and they told him that they kind of say, well, yeah, Paul, what Paul was saying, it's, it's mostly right, but uh, he, he, he forgot circumcision. You got to do this work to be saved. And so they start to add works to the gospel. And Paul has been spending his time explaining to the church of Galatia that this is just not true. This is, this is not the gospel. This is not the one true gospel. And he knows what's best for them, and he teaches them and tells them the truth. And Paul has just got done teaching them how that you are a child of God. If you have repented and believed in Christ, you are an heir to the Father. You are a child of God. You are a son and you are a daughter. You will receive that inheritance. And he's just laid out in more concerning ways what that looks like and how his concern is. And then he gives this analogy of the two covenants. And he used Hagar and Sarah to, to kind of do those things. And he finishes that in chapter four, 4, verse 31, where he says, So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And we have to just continue on from there. So if he says, So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So really we can see that this first part of chapter 5 is really meant to be with the, the preceding verses. And it's supposed to really where Paul is kind of, he's given this analogy, he's given the teaching, and so he's kind of slamming it down saying, this is the truth. For freedom in Christ he has set us free. Therefore, stand firm. Now, Paul gives this, this point to these readers, and he, and he wants them to know that they've been liberated. They, they are free. They are free in Christ. And so when you read this verse, it kind, of, it kind of asks us to ask a few more questions. Well, who is free? Who, who is actually free? Who has freedom in Christ? Well, if we look in the context of this passage, we see that it's those who are sons of the Father, those who, have received an, who will receive an inheritance, those who are co-heirs. Any, any person who has repented their sins and placed their faith in Jesus is free in Christ. They have received that freedom because Christ has set them free. So we know who is free. So we see what, what have they been set free from? This is that where I alluded to earlier, what, what have we been saved from? What have you set free from? We've been set free from our bondage to sin. We've been set free from, from death, from eternal death, from guilt, from condemnation, from legalism, from, from self-righteousness, from being a slave and, and being in bondage to sin. We've been set free from all those things. 
The chains have literally been broken because of what Christ has done on the cross. And then we ask the question, well, how did Christ set us free? It's a question we, we ponder uh, hopefully every single week that we come and proclaim the gospel. We saw back in Galatians 3.13 where he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ freed us from sin. He freed us from the wrath of God. He freed us from the bondage of sin, the bondage of the law, because he came to this earth and he lived a sinless life and he went to the cross for our sins. And he defeated death by being raised from the grave. That's how Christ has set us free. So we have to have a good understanding of our sin. See, if we have a, a, a poor misunderstanding of what we've been set free from, if you have a poor understanding of, of what that is, you might be tempted to go back to it. If you just see your sin or my sin in my life and think, well, it's just a couple bad decisions here or there, or in my case, probably a few more bad decisions here or there, then if you just see them as just kind of, ah, uh, yeah, I shouldn't have made that choice, or, well, if I, if I could go back, I'd make a different choice. You start to, to start to downplay your sin. You downplay the very things that sent Jesus to the cross. Sin should be an enemy in our lives. Sin should be something that we strive daily to defeat in our lives. So we have to have a right understanding of our sinful nature. We have to have a right understanding of who we were before Christ. Because it needs to be something in our minds where we don't ever want to go back to that. We have to have a, need a picture in our mind, whatever you think of in your mind, but it needs to be something where you say, I don't ever want to go back to that. that. My former self is gone. It is dead to me. I don't want to return. So Paul is pleading with them to understand what they, what they have been saved from. And he wants them to understand you've been saved from that bondage to sin, that bondage to, to that life, and you've been set free. Not just free to go and, and, and do, do what? He says you've been set free for freedom, to live free. Paul is pleading with them to stand firm. Don't, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you understand your, your sinful nature, you understand who you were before Christ, why on earth would you willingly walk back to it and say, here, put the chains back on. I want that bondage again. Just pl please put the ch chains back on. That's who I want to be. We, we do not want to return to yoke of slavery. We want to stand firm in the Word of God, stand firm in the freedom that Christ has given us. The false teachers that were there, they were telling people that they needed to add works in order to believe in Jesus. Yet, you need to believe in Jesus. That's good that you've done that, but you need to add works. You need to add the work of circumcision. And Paul is really wanting the church of Galatia, he really wants them to understand this is what you're getting yourself into. Because I think there's a, there's a common belief, at least in the church of Galatia, I think it can be a common belief today that a little false teaching isn't that big of a deal. And we're going to see throughout this chapter that, no, it is a big deal. Paul, Paul's sincerity, Paul's boldness, Paul's courage, all of the things that he is writing here is because he sees false teaching as a huge deal, and he wants it rid and gone from the church. This verse is structured, if we look at five, chapter 5, verse 1, it's structured in a way that there's kind of some tension built into it. When you read this verse, you see, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Those are very positive declarations. Therefore, do not submit again to yoke of slavery. There's this already and not yet tension that's built into this text. There is a reality that, that Christians have, or we have, a, we have a dual reality. Here on this earth, right now, we are counted as righteous. 
because of Christ's righteousness. We are counted as, we are fully free because of what Christ has done for us. He has set us free. Our justification is done. It is final. We have no guilt because of what Christ has done for us. But at the same time, we struggle with sin. At the same time, we do battle every day with, with sin. We do battle with, with things that are anti-gospel. We do battle with things that are of, this, of the flesh, of the world. And so we have these dual realities that we walk in every single day until that day ends and we don't have to, and we will, all of, we will receive full righteousness and we will not have to battle with sin anymore. And what a glorious day that will be. So we have to ask ourselves, Christians, are we ready to do battle? Paul here is standing them to stand firm, meaning that you are free. Christians, you are free. To you, how you use your freedom is you stand firm and do not return to slavery. Stand firm against sin. Stand firm against the things of this world. I'm not a prophet, but I watch the news, unfortunately. And I've noticed that there's some things going on in this world that are anti-God, anti-gospel, anti-Bible. Not that, they just are, not that they just disagree with what we believe, but that they hate what we believe. The world does not like Christians. The world does not like the truth of the Scriptures. And so if we stand firm, we are going to have to face those battles. We are going to have to face day to day and ready to go to war in our jobs, in our hearts, with our friends, with our neighbors, social media. Good luck there. We've got to be willing to fight. We've got to be willing to go to war and stand firm on the Word of God and stand firm and say, this, this is truth. This is truth because God says so. I'm going to live my life and I'm going to do the things that God has called me to do because His Word is supreme. His Word is what dictates my life, not the world, not the culture, not science, not anything in the media. The Word of God is what I stand firm on. We think of battles, we think of wars and we think of, of history or, or filled with them. A lot of battles and wars are, are fought because people are trying to, to receive freedom. The Christian life is different. We don't, we don't fight wars to try to attain freedom. We go to war because we are free. The Christian life is completely different. If you go to war with sin because you're trying to attain freedom from it, like you're trying to, to please God through that thing, then you are, you are practicing works-based righteousness. You go to war every day with sin, and you'll go to war in the things that are, or the battles that are out there because you have the freedom to do so because of what Christ has done on, your, on, on the cross for your life. So Paul wants them to stand firm, and he wants us to stand firm today. He wants us to stand firm and not return back into a life of sin. Don't, don't return to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm and fight for what is right, what is, what is true, and that's the Word of God. Let's continue on in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 
So Paul wants them to know they're free. And he, he, and he kind of just sits down and levels with them here. This, this look, I, Paul, is kind of a, I think the NIV says, mark my words. Paul is, is trying to get down, you know, this is a face-to-face through a letter, but a face-to-face conversation where he wants them to, to really see what he's trying to say. They want, he wants them to see who he is. He says, I, Paul, he is placing this authority in his apostleship. He's placing this, and he says, you know who I am. You know who Paul is. This is a personal letter to a church that he loves, to a church that has cared for him, the church that has, has loved him back. He has shared the gospel with them. He has seen the gospel take root in their lives. And so he's, he's pleading with him to know, you know who I am. You know that I would not say this to you if it wasn't true. I would not mislead you. I would not misguide you. I only have your best interest in mind, and your best interest is that you align with the Word of God. So he gives them these clear teachings. Verse 2, he's saying, if, he says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He says, You're saying that Christ is not enough. If you accept circumcision as a pathway to salvation, that circumcision is required for justification with God, then you're saying that Christ is not enough. Do you realize that that's what you're saying? Christ and all the work he's done on the cross is not enough. That you have to add something to it in order to be justified. Christ will be of no advantage to you. You are saying that the saving work of Christ is only partial and the cross was not enough to save you and that you have to add something else. The Galatians seem to think that just this little bit of works, this little bit of a, of a thing that they had to add for salvation, they seem to think it's not that big of a deal. And Paul is here wanting to let them know it is a big deal. It is a big deal when you add anything to the gospel because Christ is enough. The finished work of Christ is all we need for salvation. And when we try to add anything to it or take anything away from it, we are cheapening the cross. If you try to achieve salvation by works, if you just say, okay, I have to add this one thing, then what Paul wants him to know is, okay, it's not just one thing. If you go after the law, if you, if you say, okay, I have, to, I have to do this one works for justification, for salvation, Paul says it's not just one thing. If you go after works-based righteousness, if you say, I have to do these works, Paul says, you got the whole law. You, can't just, you cannot take just one work cannot take just one thing. you got to do it all. You have to follow all of the law. Have you ever tried to follow all of the law? I've not been very successful at it, and I could venture to guess pretty accurately that none of you have either. None of us can follow the law. If we, on our best day, on my absolute best day, I don't think I would, I would trust my best five minutes as a perfection of following the law. Because we can't do it. Jesus did. Jesus completely followed the law. Jesus was sinless. Works-based righteousness will not lead to success. It will just lead to failure, which leads to death. When we think about works-based righteousness, it offers no hope. It offers no assurance. The only, only thing that can offer hope, that can offer assurance, is salvation through Christ. We continue on as Paul is continuing to plead with them, look, you don't want this. You don't want to follow the law. If you do, you got, a, you got the whole thing. And in verse 4, he says, you are severed from Christ. 
You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. There are some denominations that take this teaching and say, oh, look, you can lose your salvation. That's not what he's talking about here. Paul is warning the churches of Galatia what would happen if they accept this false teaching. And this warning is hitting differently to the ears of every individual, just like it does for us today as we, as we hear these warnings. Where you are in your relationship with God, it's going to hit you differently. There are people probably in the church of Galatia who, well, we know that there are people in the church of Galatia who were genuine Christians. Paul calls them brothers. He tells them that for freedom, Christ has set you free. He tells them that you are a son of God. You have been adopted into the family of God. The very beginning of this chapter, he's still talking to people who are Christians. They have repented their sins. They have placed their faith in Jesus. They haven't possibly been very well discipled. Paul is saying here there's a warning to them that even as a Christian, you can fall back into a, a pattern of sin. You can fall back into your old ways. You can fall back into a life that is not pleasing to God. So if you're in here and you think, okay, I'm a Christian now, I, I don't have to worry about falling back into my old ways. It's simply not true. There's this, there's this battle that continues wages on in our heart where the Holy Spirit is telling us that's sin. Don't do that. And we fight against that and we say, man, it's just one time. I'm going to do this one time. And we, and, we, and we sin and we grieve the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is warning his brothers and sisters in Christ to not listen to these words of these false teachers. Do not give them any thought at all. Get them out. Do not let them penetrate your hearts. And do not even be tempted to trust in this work. I know this is true because uh, I've talked to many people, including myself. I talk to myself sometimes. Don't laugh, you don't too. But most of us, if you were raised in church, most of us have struggled with legalism to some, some degree or another, where you without really intending to, have walked into a path where you started to kind of trust in your works again. You, didn't, you, didn't, you don't believe that that's what works-based righteousness. You know the gospel. You know that, that the cross is what saves you. But then you find, still find yourself saying things like, well, if I, don't, if I don't have a quiet time today, then God's going to be angry with me. Or if I don't, if I don't do this, or, or if I did do this, then, then God's going to be angry with me. And we start to to, to view how God sees us based upon our works and not on what Christ has done for us. Christ's view of us does not change because of what Christ has done. However, we live a Christian life and we live in obedience to him because we love him, because we want to do the things that God has called us to do. So Paul is warning Christians, don't fall for this trap. Don't, don't listen to this garbage. But there are also people in the church of Galatia that have professed to be a brother, they have professed to, to follow Paul's teaching, but they weren't really brothers. They didn't actually repent of their sins, and it, they may have said with their mouth that they, that they believed it, but their hearts didn't say that. Their hearts didn't show that they believed that, and that they've been trusting in works-based righteousness the whole time. And so Paul is warning them and wants them to see, look, if, if that's you, if that's you, that, you have, that you're tempted to do circumcision because you think that's going to save you, because you've been trusting in works the whole time, then you need to check your salvation. 
The salvation that you claim is not genuine. You are trusting in your works and not in Christ. Paul knows that if this teaching gets in the church, that it's, it's pervasive. That this, this is going to then be shared to the next generation. It's going to be shared to, to families. It's going to be shared as they go uh, city to city. Paul knows it needs to be rid of the church. So then Paul continues on. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves, that we are the we that are genuine Christians. So Paul's kind of showing that, that, that there are brothers and sisters in the church, <clears throat> and then there are some that are not brothers. And this we that I'm referring to now, we are those who have been adopted into the family of God. We who have repented of our sins and placed our faith in Jesus. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Only one, only one way gives hope. If we try to attain righteousness on our own through works, it will not lead to any hope. It will not give us any hope. And it will not lead to righteousness. It might lead to some form of good moral behavior, depending on whose definition of moral you're looking at, but it will not lead to righteousness. Only true righteousness can be given by Christ because he imputes it to us when we place our faith in him. And then God looks down and he doesn't see our righteousness because we know we, don't, we are not righteous, but he sees Christ instead of ours. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So Paul wants him to be clear. Look, if you're going to talk about works-based righteousness, it's not circumcision that saves you, and it's not not being circumcised that saves you. That has no play in the form of salvation. There's no work of how you mutilate your body that actually saves you. One of the commentaries I read this week, I think it was F.F. Bruce, told it uh, token compliance. We know what a token is. If you give somebody a token, it's, it's not real, it's fake, it's, it's not worth anything at all. It's just a resemblance of, of something else. And that's basically here what, what this circumcision is, that they're, they're trying to, to seek after this works-based righteousness through circumcision. They think that this act of circumcision is going to be that sets them over the top, and now God is pleased with them. Now God sees them as right, when really it's just a token. It's worthless. It's meaningless and it cannot save them. Let's continue on. Verse 7 says this, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. You don't say that word in church very often. Paul continues to remind them that they've been set free. And they've been set free for freedom, not slavery. I think there, there could be some misunderstandings as we talk about how being set free, that Christ has set us free. He didn't... Christ didn't do that, so this will become his minions doing his bidding. He set us free so we can live free lives and choose in our own will to obey him and to obey the commands that he has given him, that he's given us, I should say. 
So you would think it'd be easy to recognize a false teacher. And it can be at times. We probably could make some lists right now if we needed to of some people who we believe are false teachers based upon what they say and how it matches up with the Word of God. But there's a lot of times that, that false teachers try to sneak in. They try to, they try to sprinkle enough truth and some falsehoods to where it's not easy to be seen. I'm going to sprinkle some truth here. People like seeing the truth. False. Yeah, you didn't notice that, did you? I just threw that false one in there, snuck on by. So sometimes false teachers are kind of hard to recognize. That's why we've got to be in the Word. We've got to know what the Scriptures say. So people were there. They were tickling people's ears. There was lots of truth. Yes, Jesus was good. Jesus did a lot of good things, but circumcision. So they brought that falsehood in. Paul says, you were running so well. Who hindered you? I was going to tell a story about cross country and about how sometimes people start off real fast and they just like die. And I realized that's not really what this verse is saying here. This would be like somebody was in the Olympics and they're all running well. And then someone just shoots out of the stands and tackles somebody. I watched a lot of Olympics the last few weeks, and I didn't see any of that, although that probably would have been more, more fun. So who hindered you? You were running well. You were, doing, you were doing things rightly. Who hindered you? Somebody physically stopped you. Someone physically got in the way and stopped you. Who blocked your ability to hear and believe the truth? Who have you allowed to speak into your life? Paul's asking them that question. Who have you allowed to speak into your life? Now, I hope those false teachers were in the room as they were reading this because they were like, hmm, that was you. You did that. Or hopefully the false teacher was the one reading it. That'd be really funny. But we don't know any of that. But he's asking the church of Galatia, who hindered you? And we have to ask ourselves that question too. Who are we allowing to speak into our life? Who have we, given, who have we granted permission to speak truth into us? Now, hopefully, we're receiving a massive amount of truth from Scripture. We're reading the Word. We're hearing what God has to say. And then we're supplementing that with other good books, good doctrinally sound books that teach and talk about the Word and, and kind of instruct us on how that applies to our lives. If we're listening to sermons throughout the week, hopefully we're listening to teachers who are actually teaching the Word of God. Not, just, not the ones that just tell good stories, not the ones that just tell you know, funny, funny tales and then read a passage of Scripture at the end. We want, to, we want to be saturated with people that are teaching the Word of God. So think about that as you examine your life. Who, who are you allowing to speak into you? Do you have some friends or some coworkers or some people who you've allowed them to influence your, your actions and your desire? Have you allowed the world and the culture, and the media to influence how you act, how you, how you do things. Jared talks all the time about if you are ashamed of the Word, then you've allowed the culture to penetrate you. You've allowed the culture to change where your default is. Our default should align with the Word of God. Anytime our default deviates from the Word of God, we fix our default. We want to return back to that every single time. But if culture starts to dictate our default, then we can be here because this is where we think center is and the Bible's over here and we don't course correct because culture says we're right here. This is where, this is where culture lines up, so we're okay. I didn't go left on purpose there in case you thought that was a political move, all right? 
Maybe. No. <laughs> we got to be careful about who we're allowing to speak into our hearts. The Galatians weren't careful, and they, they let people speak into us that's into them that were telling them a false gospel. This is why discipleship is so important. If you think about this text, we, we see that if you can run well, that the, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's not something that you just do really quickly and it's over. The Christian life is a marathon that we continually run. It also doesn't mean that we start slow. We should be trying to run well the entire, entire time, but we need the body of Christ to lift us up. We need small groups. We need people to mentor us. We need discipleship. So when we are tempted to deviate from where the Word of God says, we have people to lovingly say, hey, brother, you've lost it. You've went off track. What are you doing? I need those people in my life, and we all need those people in our life to tell us when we've deviated from the Word of God. We want to constantly be being discipled and constantly be discipling other people. Verses 8 and 9 says, Take notice, when someone is teaching something that's not true, they are not of God. If someone claims to be of God, someone claims to be a servant of, of God, and yet they are teaching things that are not godly, they are teaching things that are false, and they know it to be false, they are not of God. They are a liar. And you need to be away from them, and if they're in your church, you need to get rid of them if they are teaching. You need to continue tell them the truth, but don't let them teach you. We talked earlier about it being a big deal. Paul uses an illustration about leaven how it leavens the whole lump just takes a little bit and it has permeated through and has affected the whole lump. And that's what false teaching can do. It's cancer to a church. We don't want false teaching. We don't want false teaching here. We don't want false teaching in any Bible-believing church. Any church that is believing falsely and is teaching wrong, we hope that they see the truth of the gospel and can repent of that and can turn to Christ. So Paul says it, it's not just a little, it's not a little thing. It's not something to just kind of brush off. Paul could have brushed it off. He heard about, he heard about how the false teachers had come in. He could have been like, you know, I love those people, but if I, if I send them a strongly worded letter, they could not like me. I could hurt my public witness with other missionaries if I send them a strongly worded letter. So I'm just going to encourage them, hey guys, keep pressing on. But Paul didn't do that. We're reading this book of the Bible because he felt that he needed to, re to rebuke them and tell them where they were erring so they could correct it. They could repent of the things that they have done. They could turn back to God. Paul seems to have confidence that they are going to turn back. We see this in verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you, will, that you will take no other view, that you're going to stay and stand firm on the truth of the gospel. Paul does not take that confidence in his own ability. He doesn't say, I have confidence because I am so gifted at the pen. I take confidence because I know how I taught you, and there's no way you could deviate from that. Paul doesn't go there. He doesn't say that he doesn't say that. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will hold to this view. So Paul trusts in the work of Christ. Paul trusts that all of those who are truly in Christ, that are truly in the family of Christ, are secure. 
the Lord's going to bring them back. At some point, at some time, their eyes are going to be awakened to the sin that they are committing, and they are going to return to their first love, which is the gospel. False teachers are going to be judged by God. We see this clearly in this text. False teachers are not going to get a free pass. They're not going to go to heaven with jets or all the money that some of them have accumulated. They're still going to be judged by God for any, any false teaching that they've knowingly have taught their congregation and have just saturated the, the church and really sometimes the evangelical word, world. Paul was persecuted for teaching and letting them know the truth. Persecution will come. If you hold fast to the truth of the gospel, if you stand firm like Paul calls us to, persecution will come. It could come from within the church. It could come from outside the church. It probably will come from both. We must stand firm on the word of God. Paul says this, the persecution that's coming to me is evidence that I am teaching rightly. If I was teaching wrongly, they would not care what I'm saying, but because I am teaching you the right things, things that are opposed to their natural tendencies, things that are opposed to their teachings, This is evidence that I am teaching rightly. We need to be prepared and willing to stand firm in the Word of God, to stand firm on the truth of the gospel, no matter what persecution may come our way. Whether it's coming from people that we've known for a long time that just start saying things about us that aren't true, whether it comes from media and culture and the world saying that that we are, are bigots and that we say things that we are unloving, when really... Telling them the truth of the gospel is the most loving thing we could ever do. But it could come, and it will come from from all different different places here. Then we get to verse 12, where Paul doesn't really hide anything about how he feels about false teachers. As I was reading this, I've always really only had one view of, of why Paul says this, and I started reading commentaries, and commentary after commentary had different views on why Paul used this language. I thought that was interesting. Some commentaries believe, and some commentators, I should say, believe that Paul is alluding to pagan priests. There were pagan priests in those days who, to sacrifice to their false gods, would fully emasculate themselves. It's not a religion that I want to be a part of. It's not exactly a calling card of, hey, come join our religion. But, uh, okay. So some, some may have thought that Paul was alluding to that and saying, their false gospel that you're tending and believing to, it's no better than those pagan priests. It's no better. It's going to get you the same result. It's going to get you separated from God. Some say that, that, that Paul's being a little more casual with the way he's speaking here, and, and he's saying, if, if you're going to trust the works of the gospel, if you're going to trust in these tokens for salvation, then when you're cutting, I hope the knife slips. Some think he's, he's speaking more like that in more of a casual conversation. And I just moved my notes. Some believe that that's, that's not how he's really alluding to it either. That Some say, that, well, Paul is teaching that if you're going to rely on works of the gospel, you're going to rely on a token, circumcision may not be a big enough token. Maybe that's not going to do it. If you're going to really trust on works, maybe you should go back farther and cut the whole thing off. Do the biggest work you could think of. And that's not going to do it. That's not going to suffice. That's not going to please God. 
That's not going to save you. I don't know which interpretation is really the correct one Paul is saying here, but they all have the same meaning. They all mean the false teaching of circumcision, the false teaching of adding works to be righteous with God is wrong. It is against the gospel. It's not adding to, it's, it is adding to the gospel, but it's making a false gospel. It doesn't make the gospel better. It doesn't make it more complete. It makes it wrong. We need to trust in Christ, trust in the finished work of Christ. Let's continue on in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I have heard you shall love your neighbors yourself more times in the last 18 months than probably my previous, not my previous life, but previously in my life, not, not that I had two lives. That's confusing. So Paul's reminding them, brothers, you have been, you have been set free for freedom. How are you going to use that freedom? He's already warned them, do not use your freedom to willingly go back to slavery, bondage to sin. Do not use your freedom to go back to legalism. Do not use your freedom to go back to your old self. Now he wants us to, to know that we also need to be careful to not use our Christian freedom, to not use the freedom that Christ has given us, but don't use it as a license to sin. So many times I've seen people who have struggled with legalism and they've, they, they've struggled with the fact that they've, they've, they've had it in their desire that they have to do these things in order for God to, to be okay with them, for God to like them, for God to be pleased with them. They, when, they've, when they've rid themselves as, as legalism, there's nothing wrong with works. There's nothing wrong with good works and obedience to God. But they've tried to, to self-correct, and they went too far, and they went over to license to sin. Well, then it became, well... I'm free in Christ. So I, want, I can do this if I want to. And that license to sin begins to be how they start to use their freedom. Paul is saying that's not right either. That's not how we use our freedom. That's not how we use our freedom. We use our freedom to obey God. We use our freedom to do the things in love and in worship to our Father that we want to do. He's given us commands. He's given us things. He has shown us in His Word that this is what is best for your life. In the same way that I teach my children how to live life because I think I know what's best for them, and I do know what's best for them better than they do, we teach our kids what's best for them the same way our Heavenly Father has taught us through His Word what is the absolute best for our life. If you want joy, if you want hope, if you want anything positive in life, then follow the Scriptures, follow the words that God's given us, and He has given us the freedom to do so, not an obligation because we have to, because if we don't, something's going to happen to us, but because we want to do the things our Father has given us. We want to follow our Father. We want to obey Him. But some use their Christian freedom for sin. Christ is not glorified by Christians that look like the world. Christ is glorified by Christians that are striving to be like Christ. If we use our, our, license, our, our freedom to, and license to sin, we're going to start looking more and more like the world. 
going to be harder and harder to say, is that person a Christian? My vision is blurred because I can't tell. We need to look. We need to stand firm on the Word of God, and we're going to become and strive to become more and more like Christ every single day. And it's going to be pretty obvious in the things that we do, the things that we say, how we spend our time, our money, our energy. It's going to be pretty obvious that we are not like the world. And that's a good thing. So Paul asked, are, are we living for the flesh? Are we living for our, our desires, our sinful desires? Or are we using, it, using our freedom to serve one another through love? It's interesting that he goes to, to hear it next, is that we should lovingly serve one another. It's interesting also that in the Greek, the word for serve here is the same Greek word that he used for slavery in the first verse. That means it's not something that we just do once. <clears throat> Excuse me. We don't just, uh, it's not something that we just, you know, uh, well, the church is having a, a, a dinner, so I'm going to, I'm going to make some green bean casserole. I don't like green bean casserole, in case you guys ever think about that later on. But I'm going to make this one meal. I've served other people. I'm done. I did it. I served once. To use the word that is the same word for slavery means that our, our lives should be marked by service. Service should be such an aspect of our lives that it's a major part of who we are. We should want to serve one another in love. We're going to talk more about how our Christian lives look in the next few weeks, and so we're not going to get too far into that today, but we need to be thinking about how we use our Christian freedom. How do we use that to love and serve one another? This isn't one of those times where we just need to sit here and give all these examples of how you can serve one another. This church is full of people. People have needs. There are ways that we can, we can help meet needs. Some of them may be physical. Some of them may be uh, spiritual with discipleship. Some of those may be uh, just things in our families and, and burdens that we might be able to bear just to help watch the kids. There's so many needs that could pop up in the lives of just individuals that there are many ways that we can serve people. But we do it in love. So it's not a Oh, I guess I'll do it. It's not begrudging. It's, it's loving, lovingly serve one another. We can also serve one another by speaking truth. Sometimes the most loving things we can do to each other, for each other, and the people not in this building, is to be truthful with them, to share the truth with them. And the truth of the gospel is that we are all sinners and that we all need Jesus. And at times that's going to... If you don't believe that, it's going to be offensive. But it is loving to tell people the gospel and to, to repeatedly let people know that they need Jesus in their life. And we need that as Christians. We need to be reminded of our need, our need for Christ, our need of what Christ has done for us, so we continually align our lives with Christ. Paul wants them to think about how they love others. And the most natural thing he could think of, what is most naturally for you to love? Is it your wives? Is it your mom or dad? Grandma and grandpa? It's yourself. We naturally love ourselves the best. 
naturally. That's, how we, that's who we want to love. We're going to love anything. I love my kids. Naturally, we want to love ourselves. So Paul says, love your neighbor as yourself. What is loving to, for yourself as someone who is bought with the blood of Christ, someone who's, who knows what the Christian walk is, what the Christian life is, what is loving for you is how you should love someone else. He wants them to, to know that. There are thousands of examples of how we can love our neighbors. But we see as we talk about loving your neighbor, and we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks, so I don't want to uh, drag this out too much. But there are some truths about loving your neighbors. And we see the, the truth about loving your neighbor is it's in love. It's, it, it contains service. And any love that we do for our neighbor is defined by obedience to the Scriptures and not by the world. The world does not tell us what love looks like. The world does not tell us what service looks like. God did by sending His Son Jesus for our sins. The cross shows us what love is. The Scriptures give us examples of what love is. And Jared said it many times, Loving your neighbor never involves disobeying the scriptures. Are you counting how many times you say that? <laughs> so we need to remember that. We need to remember that we obey the scriptures. And in, in, in obeying the scriptures, we are loving our neighbor. And then we find ways, we're actively finding ways to love and reach out and love people. Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It seems that Paul thinks that sometimes there could be drama in the church. Wait, he wasn't Southern Baptist, I guess. I don't know. Paul's already said that false teachers are going to persecute him. They're going to persecute them too for standing firm on the word of God. But he's also telling them that if you stand firm, you serve one another, you love one another, watch out for how you react and, and talk to and treat each other. Because it's possible, it's possible that mistreatment can happen within the body of Christ. And it has no place there. We want to be unified. These gatherings should be a place where people come in who do, do not know Christ, and they look around and say, this is strange. This is odd. There is nothing normal about this. There are people from all walks of life coming together and being unified. That is otherworldly. And it's actually supernatural because God has done this. God has brought us together. He's changed our hearts personally, and he's brought us together corporately to worship him. So our, our gatherings, the times we are together, our relationships with one another should be marked by unity and not any sort of the picture that Paul, that Paul has here of, of biting and devouring one another. One of the commentaries I read, and I didn't run it down, unfortunately, mentioned the fact that it, was, it would be normal to see wolves acting like that, biting one another, devouring one another. It would not be normal for sheep to do that. Now, that was a good picture. It would, it would not be surprising for, for a wolf to come in and, and 
try to, to mess things up, to, to unsettle us, to try to shake us up as the body of Christ. That wouldn't be unnatural. It's, it's the world coming in. It, it should not be normal. It should never be natural for it to happen amongst the sheep, amongst the people of God. And so Paul's warning them, and he, and he's, and he wants them to, to look out for this. Paul is, 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 is he's going through these chapters and he's given these letters and he is genuinely hoping that, that people will, will see this truth and that through the Lord's work that they will see this, the false teaching as false and that people who have, who have kind of bought into it and who are starting to go down that path, the way this is written is, is that most of the people who he's, he's addressing here haven't bought into circumcision yet, but they're on the path. So Paul's trying to kind of spearhead it up front to kind of stop it in, before uh, you know, things can be too late. But Paul genuinely loves them, and he has concern for them, and he wants them to know the truth. And he, has, and he has confidence that the Lord is going to work, and he's going to open their eyes to the gospel, open their eyes to the truth, and that they can repent of, of how they live, they can repent of, of following a false gospel, and they can turn back to Christ. And it's the same way for us today. If you've been tempted in here to, to buy into to a workspace righteousness, if, you buy, if you've been tempted to, to buy into legalism, that, that you have to do works in order for, for Christ to love you, if you have to do these things in order for, for Christ to be pleased with you, the answer is the same for us today. If that's, if that's anybody here today, then repent. Repent of that and turn back to Christ. Know that the, the work that Christ has done on the cross is enough. It is everything we need for salvation. We don't have to trust in anything else. We never trust in our works. We never trust in our own abilities. We trust in the finished work of, of Christ. And that gives us the freedom that we have. It gives us the freedom that Christ has secured for us to, to live free lives, literally free of sin, free of the bondage that we have, has now been broken by Christ. And we need to use that, that freedom to just lovingly love others, serve others, and in doing so, serve God. And to continue to love Him, continue to worship Him, continue to give Him praise and give Him honor. If you're in here today and, and, and maybe you, you're examining your, your heart right now, you're examining your works and the things that you, you are involved in, maybe you see that there's some license to sin going on there. Maybe there's some areas in your life or in our lives today where, where we've just kind of let sin abound. We've not, we've not seen sin as an enemy in all areas of our lives. Maybe we've, we've worked real hard to, ki- to kill sin in certain areas of our life, but then there's other areas where we're like, eh, just kind of running rampant over there. If, the, if you see that in your lives, if you see it in any, any spot of your lives, then the, the call is the same. Repent of that. And stand firm and be willing to do battle with the sin that you see in your hearts. As Andy, as Andy spoke earlier, that's a good prayer to ask God continually. Bring anything to my eyes. Let me know. Reveal sins in my life that, I, that maybe I've I missed. Maybe, maybe I'm not missing them. Maybe I've been so, I'm, not, I'm calloused over them now. I've been engaged in that sin for so long. Maybe you're here today and that you're, you're not a brother, you're not a sister in Christ. 
Maybe you've been playing the religious card. Maybe you've been just playing the church game and trusting in, trusting in your works, trusting in your church attendance, trusting in the fact that you read a devotional last year, trusting in your ability to help somebody out every now and then. Maybe you've just been trusting in yourself. Maybe, you've, maybe you look at your life and think, you've not really saw a need to have, to have God in your life. Whatever that is, whatever reason it could be, if that's you today, then today is the day that you can repent of that. You can repent of the sins in your life and, and trust in Christ. There is nothing else we should trust in other than Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Lord, I thank you that you have sent Christ into this earth, that Christ came, lived a sinless life, and went to the cross. Lord, I am thankful that every sin that I have committed, every sin that I will ever commit in this life, was fully atoned for by the blood of Christ. And that prayer is echoed out by every single believer in this room. Lord, I pray that as we leave here, we have true awareness of the freedom that you have given us and that we examine our freedom. We see how we're using the freedom that you've given us. Lord, I pray that we use that freedom to honor you in all the dealings that we, that we do throughout our weeks and our days and our nights, through our jobs, our families, our hobbies, with people we interact with every day in the spheres that you've put us in, Lord. I pray that we will use that freedom to glorify you. We will love others. We will serve others. We will be truthful. That we will share the love of the gospel with those who need to hear it, Lord. Lord, I pray that we will be a unified body of Christ. Lord, that we will love each other. That we will put other people's needs above our own. Lord, I pray that when people walk into this church, they will, that they will see love that they will feel loved. Lord, I pray that we will continue to have the attitude, that behavior. Lord, any time that we drift from the Word of God, I pray that you will correct us. Lord, send someone to correct any error that could pop up. Lord, you are good and you are holy. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.